Hello and welcome to the first episode of the That's Not Real Climbing podcast. I'm your host, Ginny, and I'm really excited to introduce my guest for today, Nicholas Vishman. He's been route setting for over 20 years at commercial gyms and competitions, and he's one of the first to integrate tricky parkour style moves into climbing. In this episode, we'll get into what it's like setting for World Cup-level climbers, how the IFSC chooses holds and setters, different competition formats, and how to improve the future of competition climbing. So whether you think parkour-style movement is real climbing or not, hear him out for what he has to say and let us know in the comments how you feel about it. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Nikki. Well, yeah, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Uh, good. I just came from having a climb at a friend's gym, and uh, it's good. Weather's lovely. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Marburg, which is like uh, to the north of Frankfurt, in the middle of Germany, straight in the middle of Germany. And uh, yeah, my mother's living here in a rural village. There's like 200 people living here in the middle of nowhere, fields and a dog and sheep and cows and everything so it's quite lovely how's the climbing gym there if it's so rural uh so the city like where the climbing gym is in like it's like 20 minutes by car and it's like the city has like seventy thousand citizens inhabitants and uh the gym is it's quite small like 400 square meters inside and outside wall maybe 100 square meter a little bit more and it's super good it's like really like one of the best like distinctive setting uh, i know it's like friends from berlin who moved down here and the headsetter lucas is pretty has a really good style and character uh, in setting i love it and it's like a nice little community and just building up since last year when they opened oh okay cool well yeah i think that kind of brings us right into it um since you are a setter and you have a lot of strong opinions about setting, I believe, probably. Yeah. So just starting out, how did you get into climbing and specifically route setting? So my father is one of the early sport climbing generations. Like uh, he started climbing in the 70s, and which was still like with like technical aid climbing. And then like his generation, um, friends of his, like they developed like this red point and all these like new ethics. And uh, he, uh, so he's been climbing for a long time, and he opened one of Germany's uh, first commercial climbing gyms in 1999, uh, which is still running in my, my hometown, Kassel. And they started a bouldering competition. I think back then in Germany, there were like three bouldering competitions. And uh, I think they started the third one. And they had an annual competition every first weekend of November. And as a kid, I think... Yeah, so it was 1999, so I was 11. Since I was 12, I always like had to help like stripping the walls beforehand. And at some point, I was allowed to stay on Monday and skip school and reset the whole gym <clears throat> or help like the setters. And uh, so I started setting up some point and started helping with the competition setting there and setting commercially when I was 14, 15, something like this. And I did it more and more. And at some point I got invited to set like local regional comps for the regional like state uh, federation. And uh, 
I got more and more invitations to other gyms and traveled around from gym to gym, setting commercially and comms. And uh, then it didn't make sense for me to go to university. Like I tried to go to university, but I was a little bit lost because it was too many people. I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. And at the same time, I earned money with uh, being a freelance route setter. And uh, I never stopped. So you sort of grew up in the, the community, right? Yeah, pretty privileged. Like there was always climbing around me and uh, I wasn't pushed into anything and I stopped climbing a few times as well because I kind of hated it always being surrounded by climbers. I've never seen a hotel from the inside until I was 18 and could afford it on my own. You know, always like dirt bag, like camping, uh, sleeping in cabins and like always going on climbing holidays. And like it may sound like a dream, but if you're forced to do it, it was like, and because my father, like he developed areas and did a lot of first ascents and it was a kind of like, yeah, well known in the Northern Germany part, it was always like, not like having my parents to climb. There was always like people around my parents and like, what about this route? What about this area? So I didn't enjoy it at all as a kid, but it was quite cool that my parents never really pushed me when I was older either. They were like, if you want to climb competitions, yeah, there's a train ticket. Uh, there's a, that's how the train tickets work. Uh, you go there by yourself or like just organize it with some of your friends. I'm not interested to drive you to take part in any climbing competitions, which I think was a pretty healthy habit. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I've always kind of wondered what it's like for people who grew up surrounded by that, if it sort of... I guess, changes how they interact with the sport. I think a lot of people who discover it later in life kind of um, just love it immediately and they're all in and they, I don't know, kind of develop a different relationship with it. Totally, totally. I always ask myself, like, if I would have started to climb later, if I would have continued or liked it at all, what I knew from early on and what my mother also always told me because she met a lot of like these famous people and they're all like pretty normal people up to like sociopaths. Like if you want to do something like on elitist, like performance level, like they are like, yeah, so yeah, social wise, like not like the best people to be around with. Like they're not, a lot of them are not decent human beings or like have like, something what's not that cool and that's like still the case in competition climbing and that's like what i liked about it like i always knew like that all these people who are climbing at a blah 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 limit they're just human beings and a lot of them are like proper assholes yeah oh, wow. okay <laughs> sorry uh, to say exciting. it like this but like... <laughs> exciting i won't ask you who specifically is an asshole but maybe maybe, maybe one day i'll find out yeah. <laughs> maybe you can tell me offline yeah, maybe, um, yeah. <laughs> so like you said that occasionally you hated climbing and you took these breaks i guess what changed for you eventually that made you love it again mm, i found like the cool thing about climbing is that you can do whatever you want and a lot of people think you have to do this you have to do this and climbing works like this but climbing equal slash root setting you like it's a pretty young sport, so you can do whatever you want. And if you just want to do slab climbing, you just go slab climbing. If you don't like pockets, don't climb on pockets. If you just like top roping, for example, I had a, a nasty fall when I was 15 and I was pretty badly traumatized, but no one actually helped me through, through it or to deal with the trauma. But like 
from the age of 15 to I don't know 21 I just top rope top roped I'm, I'm I'm pretty good at top roping like the steepest stuff ever um so yeah so I found like paths in climbing which I liked and especially like root setting and like the performance climbing wasn't something for me I wasn't I cannot deal with the pressure. I hate like walking around like three days through the forest because I have to save my skin just for a really good go. Because what do you gain from climbing at your limit? Like you know that you can do it. Maybe there's a next limit, but you become like pretty alone, like pretty focused on just one stupid thing, climbing up a rock or plastic stuff. And and sometimes I'm jealous of people who can do this. But there's like so much more in climbing, so much more movement and so much more stuff you can discover if you just take the pressure off and just enjoy moving. And the way you move, what you can do, there are so many endless possibilities. So I think finding out that I can be in climbing the way I want to and that I can climb just the stuff to have fun is sometimes weird to other people, but it was definitely healthy for me. No, it's great to just have fun in climbing. Um, I think, yeah, a lot of people wish they could just do that. But yeah, so I know you have your, uh, your nickname, Tricky Nikki. Um, what was, how did you, okay, well, what was your journey into getting that nickname? How did that come about? Um, difficult to say. Well, like my, my vision was always like to, to offer bouldering and climbing routes. I stopped saying routes like a while ago, like over 10 years ago just focus on bouldering um, because it's more social and just you can spend more time with it and my goal was always like not to push people or to encourage people to get stronger like a lot of times it was like okay i cannot do this boulder problem what do i need to do to solve this move i need to get stronger fitter in a better physical shape because most of our customers are like uh, recreational weekend warriors, whatever you might call them, and just people who want to have fun and who don't want to train on a physical side. My goal was always to be able to create like easy to difficult problems, up to difficult problems, which are just tricky. So you needed to solve more like your positioning. You need to work out how something works, just like change your body position slightly or use momentum and so people were forced to engage themselves with the boulder problem and maybe get in social interaction with other people and to yeah to create tricky problems instead of only physical problems and a lot of people think i'm not setting physical stuff at all which isn't true but like this just pandora's box once you open it and it came together with like a little bit, wow, some call it like the parkour movement. And because you can, for me, it was always like mixing a lot of like different styles. And when I went to the Peak District, I think 14 or 15, there were a lot of like bouldering problems uh, opened up by Johnny Dawes. And while I don't have like any climbing heroes, Johnny Dawes is pretty cool. Like because he did a lot of like, you hop from this little boulder onto this little stone, then you jump to this sloper on the crack. And the, this had, was kind of like an established boulder problem. Why shouldn't you jump around or run around over volumes and holes? Uh, because it's and use your momentum. And a lot of people were like back then, oh, that's not climbing. But whatever, like you can do whatever you want as long as it's like with climbing holes and 
you can put like all that stuff on the on a on a wall like buckets uh dock all that stuff and just create like movement riddles or situations for people to enjoy and uh yeah that's more or less how it, how i got to this nickname and yeah thanks for uh mentioning the name of the podcast <laughs> um yeah so johnny Dawes, was it? Is that like a setter that you feel like you were inspired by then? Oh no, sorry, Johnny Dawes. Uh, no, Johnny Dawes is an outdoor climber from the from the Peak District from Great Britain. He was the first oh, one. That's I embarrassing think, for me. <laughs> he was the first one, I think, who climbed E8 and E9. He had like a really beautiful dancing climbing style. So everyone who is into climbing movies, there's actually just, in my opinion, one climbing movie you should watch, which is called Stone Monkeys. And this is like the only thing you ever need to see about climbing. It's uh, mid and eighties uh, England, and it's it's great. It shows a little bit about lifestyle and climbing culture back then. Gotcha. Okay, I'll uh, I'll put that in the show notes. You can tell I'm not really familiar with outdoor climbing. I never liked that much. So. Oh, that's all right. That, that's cool. That's actually what I liked. You know, like when I read a little bit about what you posted, I was like, yeah. There should be people who are proud of not being in the into outdoor climbing, like because why not? And I guess yeah. what was it for you? Did you have like many discussions with other people about that? Um no, I mean people like hate me for not liking outdoor climbing. But um I think for me, I just I never really liked it because I actually don't like being outside. I I'm just like an indoor person. Um There's just too many elements outside, whether it's like too hot, too cold, too wet, whatever. Um, and I, I do like the the tricky parkour style movement more. I think it it's a lot of fun to play around on. So, mm, yeah, I've definitely more preferred the, the competition route. Mm. I try to call myself like a competition climber so that people have like some respect for me instead of just being like an indoor plastic climber but but that's kind of odd right that people like kind of gatekeep and are like arrogant are like this is like not real climbing what you're doing like i had to deal with this a little bit and i think you should be pretty proud of yourself being like yeah like i admire it being like yeah outdoor is nothing for me weather whatever And indoors is a good place. Like there are good places indoor where you can have fun and socialize. Yeah, yeah, I'm a lot happier this way. Um, mm. So, like, what is your response, especially as a route setter? Route setters get a lot of um, hate online for the new setting. Um, people are always saying that in like YouTube comments for competitions, they're always saying that it's not real climbing and. Um, maybe it's like too height dependent, too new school, too many like dangerous moves. What's your what's your response to that? Any hot takes? I think there are always two two sides to it, or not not two two aspects, two things about it. On the one hand, like people who sign up for a competition, they sign up to climb like that stuff, so they don't ever know like what what's coming. And uh, for root setters, it's always a little bit nicer or a little bit easier with uh, coordination dependent stuff to create a ranking and split a field because like judging and guessing uh, estimating like how strong people climbers are physically is super super difficult but if you set some, something 
really like wobbly and uncomfortable and something where you need to commit, it's just a little bit easier to guess that a lot of climbers might need more attempts. When it comes to when it comes to all these like shot calling, like this is not real climbing, like who's to say what is real climbing? I'm like really sick of people being like so adamant and so arrogant about like this is not real climbing anymore. Yes, this is not outdoor climbing because it's indoor. It's like they're totally different sports. And a lot of people don't get it that it's nowadays like two different sports, in my opinion. That's called climbing. That's two entirely different disciplines. You don't go indoors nowadays mainly to be out, fit for outside, outdoors. You can do this. But a lot of gyms just offer and cater to many different uh, people and target groups and want to cater to different needs. So um, I don't know whether it's still an unpopular opinion, but people can fight me online, offline. I'm always there to fight and discuss about the realness of climbing because this is like pretty arrogant and gatekeeping wise not to tell people this is not real climbing. Comp climbing in IFSC comps has this style nowadays. There are other competitions which go to a different direction. And yeah, was it an answer? I don't really know. Uh, yeah, I think that covers it. I'll uh, I'll leave your info before if any uh, below if anyone wants to uh, fight you on it, and maybe you'll get some good messages about that. Mm. Um, yeah. So you say that setting wobbly stuff, stuff that might be low percentage um, works well for competitions with high level athletes um, at some point they must have practiced all those moves so many times that it's not surprising for them anymore um, I mean is that the case or is there always some way to make it something new they haven't dealt with before you might think so right like yeah yeah it's a, it's a good question like I never thought about it like this way because once you're in it no, it doesn't seem like the, they always try to prepare by like every single move, like even if it's just in reiteration. So maybe let's start from the start. Um, in climbing, there's essentially just two things you can do, in my opinion, pushing and pulling. And you have the three dimensions, like horizontal, vertical, and the depth of a wall or like uh, things hold, holds volumes attached to a wall. And even though it, it's basically like push and pull into different directions. It's always a new reiteration of a move, like a, a slight, like a mutation, a permutation of a palm pushover and uh, of a jump and whatsoever. And you should never like, I think you always have to account for the comp environment, being nervous sometimes seeing or knowing or not knowing the boulder, the boulder problems, their own weakness, the order of a round, if you start with a slap, um, creates a entirely different feeling than when a round finishes with a slap, for example. So there are a lot of mind games. And I think what we did a lot of times, like that was 2013 and 14 with the German team, for example, we set training camps where we, where our goal was like to put them into uncomfortable um, positions just like mentally wise um, so they learn to deal how to behave in a or like decision making in a situation where they don't know what to do about it and um, I think I forgot the question again I, I don't think we will see like so much new anymore but at the same time 
all the moves in a competition are also always like new mixes of already existing like moves in theory but like the comp environment always changes everything up so they cannot climb the same move again which they already trained in uh, in training yeah. yeah i was just thinking that because after watching a few world cups you start to notice that a lot of the climbers moves that seem like they would have been uncomfortable at one point they just kind of breeze through it since they've done that same exact kind of move so many times before good climbers right or good competitors and uh, what i'm always more amazed of or amazed by amazed of like what amazes me is like sorry i'm not a native anyway um is like that a lot of climbers are not really improving on slab climbers for, on slab climbing for example and slab climbing is pretty easy to train it's just like do it again do it again do it again again push your heel down trust 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 commit trust it's nothing not that much physical in general like other problems so you can always try it try it try it and especially if you're tired when you when you're in a good headspace when you're in a bad headspace always go to the slab and do some exercises and that's what amazes me more because a lot of physical climbers apparently don't want to spend time dealing with their weaknesses in my opinion and that's uh. mm -hmm. yeah that um that trust is hard <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, personal experience <laughs> but but when you say for example that a lot of climbing competitions because that would be a question for me why other people watch climbing competitions like i'm yeah i'm not over it but i'm really bored of the comp format and the ifsc comp format nowadays and but like what makes it like interesting for you if you say like the moves are repetitive uh, like what's so exciting to watch it then well i don't i think for me i don't find the moves repetitive like i still love seeing them um and i think they're still interesting to see i just wonder for the competitors if they're repetitive um actually this year i feel it's a bit it's been a bit repetitive with all the lache moves, um, like the the swing and jump onto something. Mm -hmm. But I still like seeing it. I mean, some people are a lot flowier than others, and it's interesting to see the difference. Um, oh, man, now you've got me questioning why I like watching them. It's yeah, still fairly uh... new to me. I think <laughs> that's probably part of it. Yeah, it amazes me always. Like, what do see, do people want to see in climbing competitions? Because when I think about good competitions or just like good sports for me, and I'm watching like a lot of sports. I'm watching tennis, cycling, footy, soccer for all the uh, Americans out there. Not like football. <laughs> um, yeah, like all uh, like Olympic games, track and field. Like I just enjoy a lot of uh, sports, but a lot of sports have a rivalry or you have like a home court uh, advantage or like something changes but ifsc comes whether it's in seoul or vale or germany the wall is slightly different but the holes are also always like different but different then they're like the team is different the same same but different so it, it's not that a usa um ifsc world cup feels entirely different to uh world cup uh, in or the world championship in bern so like and that that's something you just see different moves because like the setters create something new and there's like a different weight on the on the whole event because sometimes the world championship is not really important 
to become a world champion because everyone will forget who's becoming the world champion this July and August because it's just about like getting to the Olympic Games. So everyone will forget the rest. And I'm like, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm just curious in general about people. Do they have like favorite climbers uh, or like favorite vaults? Like, is it, is it like, oh, the, the, the Salt Lake World Cup is always the best World Cup? I don't know. I mean, do you not feel like there's a like any rivalry going on in climbing world cups? No, oh, interesting. You can never say like Adam versus Jakob, because uh, it's nah, never. In my opinion, not there. Hasn't been like any rivalry in climbing like this, where like two people are at the peak and always fighting. Maybe in the early nineties, like Le Grand versus the other French guys. Um, but it's so much so much depends always on the on the route setting and while it's like so is volatile the right word like it's, it's a little bit like gambling like it's never like sure you know, you know I like love gambling though <laughs> gamble yourself gambling yourself because it's addicting like you bet on something but there are mm. even no betting systems on climbing that would be great right mm. i'd love to bet on climbing oh my god <laughs> okay yeah Oh yeah, maybe maybe we should start that. Like, uh, yeah, something addictive like that. That'd be great for the community. Yeah, but the the density is so high. Like in the in the semifinals, like first to get into the semifinals, and then in the semifinals itself, to get into the finals, it's like never like this. The six same competitor, like four like competitors making it into the finals it's like really really different uh difficult to to retell and rewrite a story like which climber just had an unlucky slip uh two weeks ago in the finals and maybe now they are really close it's like really similar boulder problem to two weeks ago and now it's just about not slipping again you know like this learning curve same situation i cannot think of anything like and i don't know since when you watch bouldering or climbing competitions but please tell me the most impressive climbing moment you ever had in a competition. That's hard to think of. There's just, maybe it's like the amount. There's just so many moments that felt amazing in the moment. But maybe I just don't think hard enough about it. Mm. Mm. I'll have to think about that. Mm. And that's something what I'm thinking about a lot because like in other sports, there are like games, there are moments where like a competition also turned. Like you don't, in, 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 in computer gaming, you call it like a comeback mechanic. Like if you're down, like after two boulders, for example, you get in computer games, like there's always like, uh, for example, for all the, yeah, most of people played Mario Kart, I guess like on Nintendo. And if you're like in the last position, you get this blue shell which always hits like the like the further you're back, the better the, your items are. So you can maybe make it back to the front and get back into the game. But like in climbing like this, okay, we got like two people leading after the first two boulders, but that those two people are not able to climb boulder three and four and fall completely back while someone from the back goes to the front. It ne almost never happens. It's a little bit like maybe some twists at the at the front. Uh, but it's it, uh, there's like I'm missing the spice a little bit, and this could be because I'm like watching it like for decades now. But um, yeah, I'm always uh, yeah always looking like for something 
else a little bit? The one I can think of that happened most recently, which is probably why I can think of it, is um, I already forget where this took place, but it was like um, Toby Roberts on like uh, men's foreign finals. I think that was the most yeah. most recent one. Yeah, that was in Brixen. Yeah, yeah, a few weeks okay. ago. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. you were there for it. Yeah, that was a good moment, right? Yeah, that was a good moment. And we had the similar thing, like the whole crew created this moment this year. And last year, uh, same crew created a similar moment in the male final when I think Yannick Flohe topped something. So it was also pretty hard in, like, in the last seconds or last attempts. Um, but it's really difficult to create uh, a final like this, which is unforgettable. And yeah. Well, I mean, if every moment is unforgettable, then everything becomes forgettable, doesn't it? Okay, you beat me there. <laughs> I don't know. Let's... Yeah, okay. Well, okay. Anyway, we got derailed. Um, let's uh, move on to like the World Cup stuff since we're sort of on that. Um, and I know you're not like, a, like an official IFSC setter, um, but yeah, I saw your video on... Um, setting a qualifier boulder at the World Cup in Brixen 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, this was covered a bit in the Q&A video that was on your channel that um, I'll link in the show notes. People can check it out. Um, but to give people some background here, um, just because I think a lot of people don't really know how anything in the IFSC works. There's not much information out there about it. Um, how do setters get chosen for the World Cup? Um, I think you said that there are only six. And is there a group of setters that does every single World Cup? So like for a specific World Cup now? Or how do you become an IFSC setter? Or how do you? Yeah, like in general, how, like, I guess, how do they choose who gets to set for the competition? Okay, let's do it this way. Like there's a pool of licensed IFSC setters and this how you become how you become an ifsc setter how you get a license is not a clear process uh, and people should be aware of i think uh, i don't know what happens now with me whether the ifsc listens to this but they should be aware of that the ifsc is a sport union like the ioc like the fifa so it's pretty it's a circle jerk so it's it's not it's 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 not an open thingy and not like really like um how do you like not trends visible like like the process is how to get where and how to get to something it's not pretty uh, obvious and uh, there's a lot of like who do you know and uh yeah uh, so it's not a fair process in my opinion to become an ifsc setter for each border world cup and lead world cup though there is one ifsc chief uh, out of these ifse setters some have a chiefing license some do not and the chief is accompanied by two ifsc licensed setters how do those three get appointed that's a really good question even some ifsc setters uh, cannot answer some ifsc setters last year for example told me uh, okay uh, they we, uh, they got a Google sheet uh, with a lot of competition competitions and they could apply like for three or whatsoever. And they had to do this in the next 48 hours. Um, 
other people said they they don't know and maybe there's a better process progress nowadays how to pick and how to where they want to set for sometimes the ifsc for example last year in brixen we had one of the ifsc setters who was setting in brixen and then the week afterwards was the lead world cup and Boulder world cup in innsbruck and he was uh, written or like appointed officially for both of these world cups like in the event sheet he was like on both of these world cups and on sunday no on monday after the finals a friend of mine took me from brixen to innsbruck and we took him with us and we were like uh yeah I was, when do you start setting here? And he's like, wait, what? I'm not setting it. It's broke. So um, the process is a little bit like, uh, yeah, out there. But as mentioned before, each World Cup has three appointed IFSC setters. Uh, this year uh, and last year already, uh, some of the IFSC World Cups have a fourth IFSC setter, which is not an official IFSC license setter, but a setter coming through through the diversity program the ifsc apparently has a diversity program where people of uh yeah of uh not that developed uh countries un and underrepresented groups get chosen uh, to attend other world cups um, and european cups to get more experience and hopefully with this experience uh, improve their home federation and organization. This is no path to become a licensed IFSC setter though. So a lot of these people from the diversity program, uh, they don't know what happens. Some people get chosen to continue, some not. It's also not a pretty uh, understandable process, but setter number four this year in Brixen was uh, Anna and she came through the diversity program. And then the home nation, the hometown federation, home country federation can appoint up to three setters. So in Brixen, for example, three Italian setters. I also know that some federations like the uh, USA, for example, they invited some French guys uh, or a French guy um, one, um, at some point even though this french guy for example didn't have an ifsc license so to get appointed by the hometown home federation you don't even need to have an ifsc license well at the same time in my opinion an ifsc license is not a quality uh, passport license whatsoever like i know some ifsc setters where i'm like hmm, yeah okay maybe not well others like i like highly qualified and educated and experienced yeah so it's very it's a very unofficial and i guess kind of networking process like it's yeah there's, there's, yeah there's a lot of networking maybe the the process uh is a little bit more obvious or official nowadays in 2023 to get to the world cups but like to get for example also like appointed by a national federation to be there at the world cup is uh, a lot of work, a lot of like politics. And I know, for example, some IFSC setters um, sometimes take some of their protégés, like some of their friends or like pupils or scholars with them, apprentices to some of the World Cups to give them more experience, which is nice, but it's not an obvious like open process to learn for everyone. 
So how did you uh, network your way into setting one of the qualifier folders? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Huh? Um, so I have a gym. I used to have another gym. And at some point, I started video formats like Boulder of the Week uh, just to showcase that climbing is cool and that route setting is also cool. And uh, I did different formats and to, just to show bouldering and route setting more and more. The IFSC coverage of the streams was never something I'm really into. And watching it for two hours and then just boom, cut, fade to black, that's it. And there used to be like competitions where... Uh, there was like an appeal, for example, uh, because someone stepped on a bolt or whatsoever. I think I remember something. Adam Ondra stepped onto a bolt. I think there was like a world championships. Uh, really important thing to get to the world, uh, to, to get through the Olympic Games. Then the stream cut to black and no one knew the results. And then I think he had to start again at the uh, other world qualifier event at Toulouse. Was it Adam Ondra? But something like this. So like the... So the after show, the after event um, coverage just sucks. Yeah, let's put it like this. It sucks. Like there's a World Cup stream, boom, ends. But you don't have an expert. You don't have like any athletes. You don't have like a, a feedback or like any like a review. So I started these World Cup reports. That's like what the most people uh, honestly watch on my YouTube channel. So I'm taking uh, the stream and analyze like why Climber A climbed something while Climber B failed because I think this was missing in our sports. And at some point I started working uh, on top of it for climbing holes. Um, brand climbholes.com, they have six brands in uh, our portfolio and some of those brands are IFSC brands. And um, I'm working for this brand to showcase like how our holes work and what you can do with it. And at some point, like some of our distributors for example, in Brixen, High Five, our Italian distributor, they are the sole hold sponsor for the World Cup. So if people don't know, like the IFSC doesn't own any hold. They don't own any climbing wall. They go to, to a city, to a federation, and the federations, or let's put it this way, the federation applies to be able to host a World Cup. Then the federation um, gives a venue whatsoever, and the venue has to host the World Cup and they have to bring only IFSC licensed hold brands and companies. And these gyms usually don't have enough budget for this or like the, the hold storage and space is not enough to set a World Cup. Um, the budget is around 100,000 euros for a bouldering World Cup. Of course, it depends on the hold sponsor. But in Brixen, for example, the material to be able to set these uh, 36 boulder problems, 8, 8, 10, 10. Yeah, yeah, 36 boulder problems uh, was material and worth of 100,000 euros. And how do I get there? Like I essentially approached uh, some, comp I think in 2019, I just went to Arco to the Youth World Champs because I wanted to talk to the IFSC, whether I can do my reports like with together with them. Um, and then I just filmed the setters and a little at night uh, when they had their resetting sessions and I filmed interviews with the setters and with Jackie Egodov and other people. And then I showed like 
tweaking, resetting how the comp uh, turned out. And uh, people liked it, so I found a new format. And for competitions, which we sponsor, uh, I can go, or sometimes I go Studio Block, for example, this year and then 2020, and uh, Brixen last year, Brixen this year, there will be like five uh, YouTube episodes about like five different bowlers and the five different setters uh, of Brixen, how they set their ball and how the bowler turned out. And in September, I will go to Copa in Slovenia and try to do the same for a lead climbing World Cup. And because I'm a setter, I'm hanging around like the whole week with the setting team. And a lot of them know me and I, I don't try to get into their way. But um, yeah, I'm a setter. So sometimes it's still like really like, ah, yeah, I want to do something as well. And if like, if there's a possibility, uh, then I hop onto the drill as well. And uh, that's how I got to Brixen. Yeah. Okay, exciting. Um, yeah, I wanted to go back to when you were talking about the holds a bit. Um, so you said the like this one company supplies all of the holds that they use in the World Cup. Uh, only at the Brixen World Cup, yes. So the hold distributor. So a hold distributor is someone who just sells your holds. In, and usually, like hold distributors, only work in one country. Sometimes they work like in Italy, in Austria, or like Benelux, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, which is like the same area. But a whole distributor usually has like a contract with, I don't know, like different amount of, for example, six brands, and then they sell only these six brands to customers and to gyms. And in this case, like the whole distributor needs to have uh, IFSC licensed brands, which are uh, eligible, like uh, allowed to be set with in the competitions are they ever gonna i guess use like those super niche kind of holds that are coming out like the like the spinning ones stuff like that i think the spinny ones i think there's like 360 i think what you're talking about 360 they have a wheel like a wheel yeah my pronunciation is wrong again. doesn't matter and um, and they are a licensed uh ifsc brand i think you always have to pick you have to apply for all the holes or like you have to pick like certain holes of your portfolio and the spinning thing i think it's a safety risk so we will never see it they used to be they used to be ah uh, when was that i can remember i think 2011 or 2012 we had at one of the german cups we had like a free hanging volume on ropes and they it's just safety issues and yeah, so they got rid of it. It's also like uh, it's safety issues and more difficult to judge. So they got rid of it. And I don't think they will ever get it back onto the IFSC stage. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of one of the um, questions from the Discord. Um, is there any IFSC setting rule that you wish didn't exist or that prevents you from setting something that you would want to set? Uh, there used to be, I think it was also around 2012, 13, there used to be more running starts. So what we see nowadays is like the starting position has four tapes. So it's like always like four points, four limbs to those parts. While, for example, back then it used to also be possible to 
it was possible to have like two tapes and a square or a huge rectangle to tape off a surface. So you could, for example, run onto a volume, so two feet on the volume, and your hands just touching the wall, and you just touch the uh, space. And there used to be more like uh, run and jumps like from the floor. And I think there was like also four tapes, but different kind of taping. So you, you were allowed to use the volumes before the tapes, stuff like this. Yeah, I kind of missed this a little bit because like action straight from the ground. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, no, no, not that much. Yeah, I wish we could do more stuff with fire, but like, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Jump um, through the burning ring of fire. Like I'm still trying to find like the gym, which allows me to do this. Yeah, that would, I think it would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, maybe bring that up and we'll see if anyone is willing to do that. It'd be great to see. Okay, back to uh, more of a basic question. I'm not sure if this is something, um, this is probably something route setters get a lot, but I think a lot of people aren't aware. Um, when you're setting for climbers who climb the hardest, uh, like at a World Cup level, um, What's the forerunning process like for boulders that are, or I mean, boulders, routes, whatever, that are harder than you can do yourself? Um, and yeah, you were also like sick at Brixen last year. So I'm sure that makes it much worse. Yeah. So in general, it's always a team effort. So they put like... Mm, yeah, I don't want to make any advertisement, but I'm doing it now. So if you actually want to see it, like get really, really deep into it, like how they set a bowler, check out my channel because it's like you can see it for one hour how they just set one bowler. But in general, it's a team effort. effort. So the whole round has like different styles and characteristics. Um, the team sits together or the chief says, okay, this is physical, this is technical, this is coordination, this is freestyle. And then you either pick something you feel good with or you get something uh, appointed to set something. And then you set it. And in general, at the World Cup so far, I've been to every single move Move has been done. Mm -hmm. But they never climb or almost never climb a boulder problem uh, from the bottom to the top in one go. They have so much experience. And it's also experience guessing like how much like the second part uh, how difficult it is in combination with the first part which you tested in the morning and tweaked slightly afterwards and then you just go on and test the upper part and how the, you in general do this it's a lot of experience watching stronger climbers and at some point some of the team step back don't test everything anymore maybe they test the next day and uh it always comes down sometimes like to two really strong people, but the rest of the team watching, analyzing, helping those uh, testers and setters all together, like thinking about solutions. So it's sort of like as long as you guys can do each move in isolation, it's okay, maybe. Yeah, I'm. I haven't been to a World Cup where they say, okay, this move hasn't been done, but I'm pretty sure that climbers can do it but i myself have done it many times i love a little bit of a gamble but like not on a world cup stage yeah and so do you sort of study the pro climbers to know what kind of moves they're comfortable with what kind of moves they're not 
Mm, it depends on like what kind of setter you are. Let's put it this way. In a qualification round, you see, I think, 90 bowlers in the male category or 100, uh, 100 men, and I think it was 60 women or 70, something like this. So you already see them. And the setting team can always compare the qualification round to the semifinal round to the final round, in, uh, depending, uh, talking about the difficulty. So sometimes on a qualification round, they set one bowler, which they think has like the same difficulty as one of the semifinal bowlers, just to be able to compare. And then some of the styles or some of the sections, parts of the bowlers, kind of like ask a question of the climber, how strong are you? How flexible are you? How good are you at reading uh, a sequence? How confident are you to jump out of an uncomfortable position? And these are, can be answers for the root setters, like in which shape or in which state of mind uh, climbers are. And then according to this performance on a qualification round, for example, they can tweak the semifinal accordingly and in the semifinal, it's only 20 more climbers. It's pretty, pretty, pretty difficult. So they ask again the questions of physical, technique, how to read bowler problems, how to perform under pressure. And then for the finals, um, they got after the semifinals, the semifinals get stripped. Uh, everyone goes out of the stadium or the venue. And then uh, there's if there's a curtain, like the setting team can start setting, resetting the finals earlier. If there's no curtain, then there's like a isolation uh, time where all the finalists have to be in isolation and are not allowed to take a look at the wall anymore. So the setting team usually has like a few hours to test and tweak the final climbs again if they want to. So they know, for example, what happened in the semifinals and in the qualification bowlers. And then they are like, okay. Uh, John Wan climbed this physical bowler really easy so, and he's in the finals so our physical bowler in the finals has the brief that only one climber should reach the top then we make it a little bit more difficult this could be an example how they go about the difficulties and how they watch climbers sounds stressful yeah it's super stressful <laughs> and, it's, and it's connected with a lot of emotions because it, it, it's not a science like I said, like it's um, educated or like experienced guessing. Like you never know how strong one, how strong a climber really is. You never know what they can really do, and you never know really how the conditions are because like finals start, they start setting finals on Sunday, then they test and tweak until Monday noon. Then Monday afternoon they start setting semifinals. Then Tuesday testing and tweaking semifinals then tuesday evening stripping the semifinals then on wednesday they start setting qualification group one or like one gender qualification group test tweak strip and on thursday they uh, set the other qualification group while you have like a quiet great time at the venue on sunday monday and tuesday on wednesday there's already like people from the ifsc putting cameras onto the wall and mounting stuff like the venue like all the uh like the video screens go up and stuff like this so like there's a lot of pressure a lot of people around you and every day like you deteriorate with skin and power all over the week and yeah so there are a lot of like factors coming together it's especially for an outdoor venue like sometimes it's sunny humid wind it's changing all the time so yeah 
a lot of pressure. Yeah, there's a lot of issues with outdoor venues. It's like the worst of outdoor climbing, but put into indoor climbing as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, that sort of leads into another one of the Discord questions. Um, when there's a lot of differences in between styles of the climbers, or for example, there's like one climber who's way stronger than everyone else, like if Yanya's going to be competing. Um, or if a climber has practiced a certain move a thousand times, um, how do you set to account for things like that? In general, there's a guideline which is kind of like too broad, too, yeah, not too defined, but on the other hand, it's really difficult to define it. You try, or the setting team always tries to ask as many different questions of each climber as possible. So they set a very diverse round all over each round that they try to. And you got to imagine it's uh, five bowlers in qualification, four bowlers in semifinals, and four bowlers in finals. And each boulder is also split into two parts, like to the zone and after the zone to the top. And in each boulder, if possible, you try to have like different styles sometimes. Or sometimes you mix dynamic to the zone and another kind of dynamic to the top. But like they try to create uh, a different mix already. This also heavily depends, of course, on the wall shapes. In Brixen, for example, for the final and semi-final walls, it's not allowed uh, to use the side panels. So like the whole frontal wall, every panel is overhanging. So it's pretty, pretty difficult to create uh, non-physical tricky slab, for example. Um, so there are different demands and different goals, how to different ways how to create like a good mix. If you have someone in the finals who's always way better than the others, Yanya, for example, then they try still to create like four bowlers which split the field somehow. It's not like, okay, this bowler is only for Yanya because that would mean like that the other three bowlers are only there to split the other three athletes. And what they did really well, for example, this year, I, the, there was one slap in Prague where Yanya didn't win or Jan won, I think. Yanya didn't climb. So maybe it's due to a foot injury. Um, Possibly, but, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think, uh, for example, at Studio Block 2020, when Yanya was competing, it was not about like, okay, this bowler is only for Yanya. We were always thinking that all the bowlers are possible for everyone, like for all the competitors. Yeah, but may maybe for, for, for listeners or like for uh, the listeners out there, like Yanya and Natalia uh, Crossman, um, they apparently... Or like I heard many stories that there are when it comes to, to some bowler problems which are not length dependent, that they are able to climb with the guys. So it would be really cool to have a competition at some point where we, uh, yeah, see them competing all in one category. Yeah, so many people want to see that. That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of a rivalry, isn't it? Yanya and Natalia a little bit. Could be. I don't know. I don't know how many times they really competed. Uh, in the peak performance against each yeah. other. But yeah, could be. Yeah, they actually haven't. I think a lot of people were hoping for it this year um, since people heard Yanya was going to be coming back to bouldering competitions. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe but we they will both see sort something. Of had, 
the world yeah. champs. Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry. Oh no, no, no. Yeah, I think like um, both of them have sort of had issues, and they're not really competing in their in their primes. So, mm. um, but yeah. Anyway, um, let's talk about the future of route setting. Um, what? So there are kind of like trends in route setting in a way. Um, what do you think is like the current trend and what do you think is next? Are we talking about competition setting now? More like route setting? Um, I was thinking competitions, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Is there a huge difference? Yeah, I think there's a huge difference between competition and commercial setting. People have to have to should be aware that in competition setting it's a high pressure environment time limited wise and only constrained limited amount of holes to create a result so sometimes there's a lot of like jibbing bricolage a lot of like plastic gets screwed onto plastic which is never in a commercial commercial environment the best thing to do on a competition there's only like a few Amount, like a limited amount of people climbing on something like this in a commercial environment i would be like if you really want to put this plastic on this plastic on this plastic on this plastic it's something i would consider i would think about a lot let's put it this way so there is like a big difference between competition and commercial setting because you can set like more dangerous more risky moves for people on higher performance scale um, the future, maybe more of the slippery dual techs. I don't know. Honestly, I don't. I don't think there's so much innovation anymore since the last six, seven years. Um, the dual techs was the last real innovation. But on the other hand, like there's just like more directional, uh, bigger holes. There's a lot of nonsense holes on the wall, uh, which take a lot of space. But um, no, I don't. I think we need to see something, uh, some changes in the competition formats to make it a little bit more exciting, in my opinion. Mm, interesting. So no, like movement trends that you can think of. No, it always seems like there's something new, but mm, it's just like small reiterations, in my opinion. So it's mm -hmm. not. No, no. Some setters try to go more into this or that direction. But then it heavily depends on the setters and some if someone sets something then a lot of this stuff gets not copied but like repeated in a different way like you mentioned like the lachets yeah. i call them schwingeling where you like swing forth and back it's an easy way to get like a, a final or like a round going to create like some action and yeah. and also split a field um but i Think there's not that much more evolution in climbing moves itself happening yeah. because the question is like you have to set it it takes a long time to set something super fancy fancy and then the climbers have to solve it in four respectively like five minutes mm -hmm. they have to find the solution and then still like execute it and do it and then at the same time you want to create a ranking with it that not only one climber can do it, but maybe two climbers in different attempts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I've been a little bit pivoting here, I think. <laughs> no, that's good. I think, yeah, it's hard to even imagine what other movement there would be out there. I mean, I feel like everything 
has been tried or done. Um, I think recently people have been trying to set a lot of like 360 moves, um, but it's kind of hard to force that maybe. Yeah, and, and, and it's like, it, it comes and goes in waves, I think. Like these 360 moves are like usually a campus to a pocket, then turn 180, go to the next one and turn 180 again. This, is this a 360? But um, like we have this many, many times, and, and it's okay to have something like many, many times. I love a good reiteration or a repetition of a good move mixed with something else. Uh, but it comes and goes in waves. I think, and a lot of people like setters when they see something, something, they try to recreate it to understand how the move works, and that's that's cool. That's fair. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I in terms of three sixty moves, there's been a couple recently where you're like pivoting on a foot and trying to go around. Yeah. Um, but I think what happens is a lot of people, especially since it's new and they're not familiar with the time crunch, they try to uh, just break it. Um, but that's been sort of exciting. Um, do you think people will get tired of these like trendy moves and people want to move on to the next thing too fast or, uh, I know that a lot of competitors get tired of it. A lot of competitors ask for power, pure power problems where they can show their strength. Um, a few, well, a lot, a few competitors don't like the problem solving aspect that much. Because it doesn't feel like they can, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't want to speak for them. I just know that few are complaining that there are not enough power problems. Um, but it's difficult. Like I said, like, there are no rules. What is a power problem? What is like this coordination problem? And the, the foot spinning move, it, it works like if you try to set it at your own gym, it always works better in a corner. And because like there are not that many corners on a comp climbing wall, it's pretty cool that they can pull it off with these um, dual text volumes where you can only step blindly into it. And yeah, competitors breaking a thing. I think it's their, their goal to find a way to the top. So it's totally fine if they try to break something as long as it's like a cool show and it's not way, way easier, but just like same, same, but different, cool. For me, it's cool to see this because it's also a way of problem solving and being like flexible, being like, yeah, I cannot do this. Maybe I'll find another solution. And yeah, I like this. Yeah, people love beta breaks. Um, And so in terms of the future, you mentioned climbing formats a bit, uh, different formats of competitions. Is there a format that you like the most in terms of watching or setting? Um, and you also recently set for, um, it was called like set and send competition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Is that that like a different format that you liked or yeah. What's one you like the most? So I think my favorite format of all times is called hard moves. We had it in Germany, I think 2010, 11, 13 and 16, 16 was the last, uh, reiteration and we will never do it again, but it was like in 2016, it was like, I think. 26 participating gyms or maybe more all across Europe and you competed for your own gym. So you try to qualify each gym had like 60 or 100 boulder problems and and you try to climb as many as possible top or nothing. That's how you get a point. So maximum 100 points and the top 10 competitors 
of each gym qualify for that gym, seven guys and three women. And then it was co- called the, then there was a battle modus. For example, out of these 26 gyms, only 10 moved to the final climbing gym where there was like with their teams. And to get there, um, for example, four gyms out of, or six gyms out of the uh, area around Cologne uh, battled on a battle day in 30 baller problems as a team again. And then it was like really important that you, if you were the strongest climber and you could climb potentially all 30, well, 40 or whatever, all, all baller problems, is it worth that you climb all 30 boulder problems and are climbing all the time on your own? Or is it worth that you maybe only climb 28, but instead of spending time for two more boulder problems, spend all the time with the teammates and try to push and give beta and encourage and brush so the whole team gets more points. Then, once you made it through this battle, only three out of six uh, moved into the next battle. We had like one final location in Bobatal where the Thing was 10 gyms now must have been more gyms even more because all the gym was packed like 400 people for sure anyway out of these another battle one day like five hours only six gyms moved into the super final which was in a in a pool like a indoor swimming uh indoor what do you call it like a indoor spa like a, with a with a pool what do you call it uh uh, yeah, and um, so the walls were built above water, seven meters high, and we had and then in the finals, every team puts six climbers into the final, two women, four guys, and there are six bowlers to climb, and everyone climbs only once. So the team, in a team effort, has to sit down and appoint each respectively climber, and the sixth boulder was hidden, so it was like five, yeah. And then you climb only you get points the higher you go and it was like really climbing in a team and cheering for a team and this is like something really similar to what i mentioned in the beginning popular sports are to grow climbing into mass popularity in my opinion you need to have something you can identify with as a fan whether it's a climber a rivalry or a team but if you try to qualify for your hometown gym as a whole team gym you've been through like six weeks sessioning together then you went to the battle day battled other gyms then you went to the final day and you climbed together the finals like the the atmosphere was way better than any world cup way better than any world cup because you identification is like it's crazy like you're winning for your city for your for your gym i think this is pretty cool and we've done this a little bit on in march we did this in a gym in the netherlands that people qualified in open category and uh, amateur slash recreational category. And then a lot of people were waiting for the normal, like usual format. Okay, the six strongest dudes and the six strongest women climbing against each other. But then we, uh, people didn't know. Then we just packed like uh, the best guy with uh, the worst guy and like best. So we created like four equal uh, teams according to the qualification or did we have five teams whatsoever and they climbed uh, in the same format in the final so they had to appoint one climber for each boulder problem and I think that was pretty cool this is probably not the future for the IFSC because the IFSC just goes uh, Olympic into the IOC 
and um, this is not feasible to to explain and to sell to to we people should always be aware of that the IFSC was founded with a clear goal to make climbing Olympic. Oh, um, really? Yeah, there's that. there is an interview on my channel. I can show, give you the link with Mar I did with Marcus Gularis on our interview where he clearly explains how climbing became a, an Olympic sport. And it also, if you think a little bit about it, like you will, it will show you like where climbing will go easier to understand and whatsoever, which is fine. Climbing is still like a really young sport, but people should be aware of, or what I'd like to share is like that nothing is set in stone. Like you can do any climbing competition you want. Like climbing is so young. Do with it what you want. Try new formats. Go out there and experiment. Just because you see something on the stream doesn't mean like that's the best for our sport, for our community, or especially for your local community. Um, there is so much stuff you can do. There are so many rules unwritten, so much fun you can have, uh, especially with fun local comps. Just uh, at my gym, we do uh, 30 qualification blocks and then three final blocks for each category and only three tries for each bowler. Finals quicker, faster over. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. Um, I think that's what people should be know about the comms in general and com future. I think it will be a little bit easier to understand. Maybe they put like numbers at some point next to the holes. So it's more obvious to see who climbs which and what. And they should also be aware of that the, the combined format was like something what just needed to be done to include climbing in the Olympic Games and that there were like many crazy ideas beforehand. I think there used to be competitions which had a shootout modus and at my hometown gym we used to do this. Uh, six finalists start in boulder number one, four finalists go to boulder number two and then only two oh, go yeah. to the last. It's, yeah, I've seen that. it's highly unfair because if you don't like the jump in boulder number one, you won't maybe not make it to the physical boulder. Yada, yada. But it's really spectacular. And that's what, as far as I know, the IFSC or the president planned for the first combined format. He was like, okay, first we will do speed, then bouldering, and then lead, because lead is his special, like his, his, his favorite uh, um, discipline. But like the best lead climbers would have never arrived in the lead uh, shootout because like from 20 to 12 to 6 finalists, first all the speed climbers kick all the slow lead climbers out and then the boulderers climb the rest of the lead climbers out. <laughs> then you have only boulderers and speed climbers in the finals on lead. So this would have, I think that was the proposal as far as I know. And then like all, uh, and then all the federations stepped in and were like, no, 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 we need to develop a different format. And then they developed this different format like in, in a few days in 2017, which they then used in 2018 again at the World Championship in Innsbruck. Yeah, so the sport is pretty young. There will be more changes, and especially if you're not bound to the IFSC, I'm happy to see new comp formats and new ideas. There's always something you can do. Yeah, definitely send me that video. That sounds really interesting. Um, I'll put everything in the show notes. Um, and it, it would also, yeah, I, I hadn't ever thought about this team based approach, uh, with like different cities and stuff. That would be really interesting to see 
but I guess Japan would just blow everyone out of the water. So maybe <laughs> yeah. it would be yeah, pretty, pretty much don't have a good time against uh, Team B Pump. But when it comes to the, like my idea, would be that for example you have a World Cup in the United States, you have a World Cup in France, you have a World Cup in Italy, uh, whatsoever around the world. But that each World Cup feels a little bit more. Uh, feels different for example in the united states it's uh, maybe it's an exaggeration but like a lot of the um, american setters like to be a little bit more physical in those deep big pinches and it would make sense in my in my opinion if to make it feel more american only use american brands kilter e-groups i don't know like more stuff like this or just as, as a majority too so the american climbers always have like a I have a pro. What does it mean? Like a benefit, benefit, like a a step, uh, advantage, a little, maybe? advantage. Yeah, sorry, advantage. That's it. But then, when you go to France, for example, you climb on French slabs, on French grips, and it's it's a little bit more delicate. So you always know, like, ah, oh, French World Cup. It's pretty technical. Then you go to Italy, where they have like steep limestone roots, for example, and it's more pockets. And also Italian brands. So you have this hometown advantage, and every World Cup feels like super different. That would be really nice. Because take a look at tennis. You start with the Australian Open, it's hard court. Then you go to France, you play Roland Garros, you play on sand, on clay, where you had Rafael Nadal, who only lost like three games in his whole life. Like he won 112 games, lost only three. So that's an advantage. And then you know, like, uh, now I'm going to Slovenia. And it's not only because it's Janja, but it's like the whole Slovenian team is so used to the, their Slovenian walls, Slovenian brands. So it's like really, really like beating a Slovenian in Slovenia. This would be like something. Yeah, like uh, that's what I'm thinking about. Would be like cooler for the storytelling, and yeah, would be like super interesting. But like uh, a lot of other sports have this, like tennis again, like Wimbledon right now in London, and in uh, football slash soccer in Europe, you have like this hometown advantage with the hometown fans. Uh, it's just very very different. I don't know whether it's like the same in the United States, but. Yeah, like you have this um, NBA, like you have the best of seven. You travel like three times, four times back and forth. It's just like if the whole town is like in one vibe and, you know, like there are people coming from the outside trying to win in our town. I think that's a pretty different vibe to, okay, we all go together somewhere and like have a good time, which is fun and, and it's nice. Like it's, it's, it's cool to be in a... And a World Cup hosting town, which is small as Brixen or like some of the lead World Cups like Vila. Uh, there's always climbers everywhere around and it's a nice atmosphere. But yeah, a little bit more of rivalry or like something like some spark would be would be too bad, in my opinion. I wonder if that would bring more money into climbing in a way. I think more money into climbing is only possible if climbers have more personality. I think it's pretty, it's it's speaking for our sport that the most well-known climber in the world is Alex Honnold. Of course, he did something pretty crazy, but like he's also, I think he's on a spectrum, right? Like I. Oh, I have no idea. Anyway, like he's, 
he's he's super funny, super like honest and super like outspeaking, yeah. outspoken with yeah. his thoughts, uh, and it's super charismatic. But a lot of these, yeah. please tell me your favorite charismatic comb climber. Um, I love Stasha. Yeah, Stasha is good. Stasha is good. Okay, tell me more. Who? Yeah, who would you take to put into Oprah? Oprah is not on air anymore. I know that, but who would you put on air on Oprah's couch? And they had like two minutes to describe why is climbing so cool or come climbing. I don't know. Yeah, it's hard. It, 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 it's on the one hand, it's it's the format, which is difficult to explain. And on the other hand, like which character could go out there and be like, yeah, climbing is fucking dope. And climbing competitions are even more dope. So here sponsor me yeah i guess that is hard um i don't think i consume enough sports content to know who that person is for other sports though are there a lot of like famous other sports like like sport like tom brady like all the nba players it's like michael jordan like created like a whole lifestyle brand lifestyle brand but like it's yeah but it's not like you ask a question like to bring more money into climbing the thing is there's money money in climbing but not like into comp in competition climbing like the climbing gyms we are doing well we, we attract more and more people we get nice people we build nice communities we're trying to make life better for root setters which is difficult we should try to get more diversity in we should try to improve diversity in climbing in general in comp climbing, there's zero to none. It's fucked up, like especially for root setting. Um, but like, there's money in it. Like there are people, millionaires in climbing due to the climbing gyms. And, um, but there's not that kind of money what we think there could be in climbing competitions, yes. We don't have Rolex or Fred Perry as a sponsor of stuff mm, like this. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, the sponsors, I guess. That might be part of it. Yeah. Well, stuff to think about. Um, I think, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's everything I wanted to cover. Um, anything else that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you wanted to bring up? No, I hope I didn't come, uh, I didn't sound too negative about comp climbing or like the IFSC. It's just like that I'd like to use this, like to show people that it's not like, not everything is set in stone do what you want if you're open like to have suggestions like try them on their own like approach your gym as root setters as a community come up with ideas like there's so much cool stuff you can do and just because it's streamed online on youtube at the ifsc it's not the only thing which is what's happening and climbing and especially tackling problems like diversity and gender uh, problems in climbing and uh, the creational groups of climbing I'm pretty sure the IFSC will not solve these problems. We have to do it on our communal, commercial area, and especially like saving the outdoors or treating, teaching people how to behave outside if people like to go outside. I always say stay inside, watch Twitch, play computer games, watch all the other sports. Um, it's okay. It's also fun. Um, but like all this educational stuff and how we behave as a community, where do we want to go as a community? I think this happens with our climbing gyms. We visit on a daily, weekly basis. And yeah, if there's anything we didn't talk about, 
let me know. I'm always happy to talk about climbing. If it's more about root setting, you want to know in specific like how root setting works, feel free to hit me up or watch my channel. Yeah, would you like to let everyone know where they can find you if they want to learn more about root setting, holds, just following your journey? Yeah, my name is Niklas Wiechmann, but everyone calls me Niki, and you can call me, uh, find me on Instagram uh, with Schniklas or Beta Root Setting on YouTube. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. It was so great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation and uh, have fun climbing and have fun with this podcast. Hopefully, okay. <laughs> let me know what you think. Yeah. Because like with the podcast, it's always a little bit difficult to receive feedback. Mm. That's my um, experience. And if there's like anyone out there who has like any thoughts, comments, concerns, like hit it, hit me on YouTube or whatsoever, like write it into the comments. I'll read usually everything. And I'm thankful to get feedback mm -hmm. and uh, whether it's negative, positive, I can just learn with it and then we see what happens. Yeah, same so, here. Cool. Thank you. Hi, if you made it all the way to the end of the podcast here, thank you so much for sticking with me and I hope you enjoyed. I'm just starting out, so please, I welcome any constructive feedback or suggestions. You can leave them in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube or you can leave it through a review or you can reach out through my competition climbing discord server, also linked in the description throughout all of the platforms. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.